The Youthscape Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Martin, I think you'd agree. This is a podcast where we shed light on the good and the great of the youth ministry world, and we overshare stories of our immense insecurities. Yeah, that's exactly what we <laughs> that's do. That's, exactly the, that's the, do. the point of. Yes. That's almost that should be the Apple iTunes tagline, shouldn't it? Um, yeah. So look, we'll get, uh, we're going to do something quite different yes. this morning, which is we're going to shut up. Oh my goodness. We're not going to overshare. We're not going to overshare. Unless you quickly want to share no. some insecurities. No, I have none this morning. Oh, come on. Oh my goodness. I have loads, but I'm not going to share them now because we've got a great guest and actually yeah. we want to give maximum time to listen to her. That's right. Who is she, Martin? Well, well, recently we had, I don't, I don't know if we mentioned this, we had the National Youth Ministry <laughs> Weekend and, uh, and Ken DeCreasy Dean was one of the uh, main speakers there and she was amazing, uh, but she, she took a bit of time out to talk to a couple of friends of ours. Uh, who, who are, I think, auditioning for the role of I podcast host. I think that. I thought yeah. they were doing quite a good job. Yeah, they were I, doing very yeah, well. Yeah, I thought and, so. And so, um, so, so actually, they've done the interview, and we haven't. So, uh, so, so Jamie Cutteridge and Naomi Luff, who I slightly grew up with, actually, as oh, a little, little, little side, side note. Yeah, a little side. She sounds very young. Slightly a lot grew up younger with her. than you. No, she... I, well, I, I'm not going to comment peers? on that. Are we talking peers? Probably. Or, right, no. I think she was not she's in my youth group. Well. She's but better than I am. But, but she was in another youth group down the road. Called Toddlers. From... <laughs> <laughs> another youth group. Anyway, let's yes, get back to the point. Yes. This is about Kenda. So right. Jamie and Naomi. So Jamie and Naomi. Oh, I've done realise that rhymes. Jamie and Naomi. If you've been, if you've tuned in for the highbrow concrete it's podcast coming. It's, it's, it's coming. very close <laughs> so um so jamie and naomi um they interviewed kenda at the national youth ministry weekend on behalf of concrete uh, which is a platform supporting and resourcing christians working with young people and there's a there's a bunch of think tanks which uh which make up concrete which which they say connect think and amplify that's brilliant that's the uh, yeah. that's the tag and so they have a theology think tank which is one of them and jamie and naomi are part of the theology think tank and they read uh, a book that Kenda co-wrote with Andrew Root which is the theological turn in youth ministry and so uh, what they did was they, they, they at the National Youth Ministry weekend they bundled Kenda into a hotel cafe which as it turns out was quite noisy yes you can hear lots as, of music but just yeah. not as noisy as some of the places we recorded yeah. and uh, and they asked her all about the book and some other things and I think we should just be quiet now and, and, and listen, listen, listen to Kenda to so this is Kenda Creasy Dean. The Youthscape Podcast. So to get started, um, I guess for maybe people who haven't read the book or people who were so keen to read it, they read it when it first came out six years ago and haven't gone back to it since. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what inspired the book and kind of some of the main takeaways from it. Yeah. Um, well, the, the thing that inspired it was Andy Root. He recognized that there were a lot of things that, little conversations that had, will p- appear in different publications from time to time, but um, they disappear, you know, into the mm. ether after that. And they were, he thought that they were still relevant enough that they should be collected again. So he went about the task of curating all of that stuff. And, um, but the thing that was the, um, I guess, the buy-in for me was, um, in some ways, well, we had to fight for the title of the book. The, the right. publisher wanted to call it something way cooler. Um, but 
we felt like there had been a shift um, in terms of the way people thought about youth ministry. And so this theological turn was something we wanted to claim. And um, we thought that this would be one way of getting into that discussion, basically, and just to make that explicit rather than something that, you know, 50 years from now people might look back and go, huh, people think about things differently now. Why is that? So anyway, we, we just wanted to claim that conversation and get that out there so that that became a way people thought about the conversation in youth ministry, mm-hmm. um, which is really different from when I started in youth ministry. So, you know, you guys weren't born, but back in the day, you know, it, the last thing in the world that was ever attached to youth ministry was a theological conversation. So, And what, um, like since, since that book came out, are there things that are included in there that you would say you'd think of differently or um, are no longer relevant? Or I don't know, what do you think are the biggest changes in that time? Well, I think the biggest, the biggest thing about the book itself is that a lot of the material, particularly mine, is dated. Mm-hmm. And um, the, as, as this goes forward, this conversation goes forward, I mean, one of the things I'm eager about is to kind of hand this conversation on to folks who are just starting their ministries now because I think this it, it will change the way it the theological conversation will be different, right? What is different now than when some of that stuff was written? First of all, the explicit nature of theology and the connection with youth ministry. Um, and the context for ministry is so different. I mean, some of that stuff back one thing I wrote had a thing on these shootings in a high school called Columbine in um, Colorado, which was, um, despite the fact we've had drive-by shootings in a lot of urban areas for a long time, this caught the national attention in a new way. That was like the biggest thing that people were reflecting on forever. And then 9-11 happened. You know, I mean, so the whole, the whole sensibility of what it means to be um, a youth in the world today you know, for kids growing up in this, they have a completely different, you know, their head's in a very different place. Um, and, you know, even my own children who were, um, I think my son was in sixth grade during 9-11, and, you know, his expectations of what the world is like, it looks very different. That inevitably, um, I think, first of all, it forces some really deep theological conversation about youth ministry. It forces us to get really honest about all the time we have spent doing things that make very little difference, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it forces us to think about um, the whole uh, entertainment mode of ministry in very different ways. All of that stuff feels really dated now in ways that it was, we were just beginning to critique that, but, you know, that, you know, kind of put the nail in the coffin on that stuff, so. Do you think that theological conversation surrounding youth ministry is still going on, or do you think that's kind of been... Is, is theology to some extent the thing that we kind of forget and drop when we're busy trying to catch up with yeah, yeah. culture or whatever yeah. else? I do think that we, we we drop it, but at least we know we shouldn't now. <laughs> um, you know, we all get busy and we all get captured by the pragmatic needs of this kid who's in front of us right now, mm. right? Um, and to take the time to develop the habits for that kind of theological re- reflection to be in your in your veins mm. yeah. and not just something that you have to consciously do every time. That takes some time, it takes some discipline, it takes some training. The other thing that's different for us, I don't know about here, is that the role of the professional youth worker, which I spent the first part of my career trying to develop, is really kaput because it's almost all volunteer now. 
um, finances have driven that. And um, as a result, the theological conversation that you you once would have hoped would happen because your youth worker had theological training, had been to seminary, mm-hmm. you know, maybe was ordained, that kind of stuff, um, that audience is very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the volunteer theological education is where we are moving now. Right. Which is equally, um, has the equal amount of potential and could be a lot more robust, actually, than a bunch of nerdy, you know, theologians in a room. But um, our tools aren't as finely tuned for that. Not yet. Mm. And interesting thinking about what that means, what the knock-on effect then is for youth work practice. Yeah. If it's all been done by volunteers or younger people. So we were talking earlier about... um, more experienced youth workers and maybe paid youth workers not sticking around yeah. for the long term right. for whatever reason right. and so you're almost restarting you're re, you know all restarting the all the time all the time and, and how, that's always how you deal with that's that. always been a problem in youth ministry right even with paid youth workers yeah. and paid pastors they didn't stay there in that role very long it's always been the exception but it's definitely accentuated with volunteers mm. and I think part of the way we think about that is, number one, we have to do a better job of theologically educating our congregations. Because, of course, youth ministry isn't the task of the youth worker in a congregation um, or in um, whatever community organization. It's the task of the community, right? And so probably the first thing that we have to do is get real about the fact one person doesn't do ministry, right? It's, it's the community coming together. So what do we do to form those communities in ways that they're not just dependent upon the one person that went to the continuing education event and happened to get the training, right? Um, and congregations are slow to make that shift because they too are turning over, you know? Um, it's the nature of volunteerism, but um, as a whole, uh, a lot of congregations don't see um, theological reflection as something anybody but the pastor does. Mm-hmm. And um, for them to think about that in relationship with their teenagers is kind of a kind of a jolt. I I know of a congregation, for example, who they wanted to solve their problem of, um, and this was a congregation that was a pretty under resourced congregation in terms of money, um, but they wanted to solve their poor Sunday school attendance by paying kids to come. And you know, I they they asked me about that, and I I tried to guard myself a little in terms of my horror at that. <laughs> Um, but also to be able to say, well, you know, what happens at the point in which um, this child who has invited somebody to come, his friend finds out that that's the reason, you know. What, what about the message that you're trying to teach there and how does that, you know, conflict with that? Um, I think if they had had a little, a few theological conversations around that, that that possibility might have been one that they ruled out. But um, again, especially in the U.S., <laughs> We are pragmatists to our core, so if it'll work, we'll try it, you know. Um, or that at least we think it'll work. Um, one of the things when I read the book that really stood out to me was this thing of how we, as youth workers or maybe as churches, don't value um, a young person's experience of God and where they're at at that time. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. almost like we... we communicate that they can't experience God or they can't have a real faith until they're an adult and that came through really strongly to me really struck me as true Um, and I wonder kind of how how we address that you know and how we how we really value what young people are experiencing of God and what we can learn from them so how as as a church do we address that and how do we as youth workers kind of 
how we cooking the It's a great question, and I I think there's some practical ways to respond to that, and also some more philosophical um, responses to it. I mean, um, the philosophical part is just that you know to to in some way suggest that young people um, have a lesser experience of their faith. Um, is a little bit like saying, you know, that you're not a whole person until you're an adult, which of course is crazy. Um, they, and the churches that seem to get beyond that, um, there's actually data to show that, first of all, um, they have a voice from the pulpit that affirms youth and includes them. And when they're preaching, they're not just preaching to, you know, a certain demographic. They include part of an adolescence experience as part of the fodder for sermonizing. Um, I know one pastor who actually, uh, the way he handled a Bible study, he was solving a practical problem. He needed to find time to do some Bible study with these kids, and he wanted to have a, a youth Bible study. So what he did was he had them help him prep his sermons. That was their Bible study together. Well, that had a very positive effect, of course, on their body and on Sunday mornings. But um, but there's also the um, just letting young people share in the context of worship and that kind of stuff. Now, we used to say, well, we need to get kids involved in congregational life as a whole and not just leave them in youth group. I think that's absolutely true. However, our solution to that was often, I know, we'll put them on a committee. You know, well, the, the furthest thing from ministry is a committee, right? So involve them in the mission of the church, you know, as, you know, contributors in that way. Involve them in the things that matter in the church. I mean, that's, you'll, you'll hear me say this a lot. It's our, our problem is not, you know, that youth aren't coming. The problem is not that they used to come and they don't anymore or they never did or whatever. Our problem is the churches don't, don't matter, you know, and why would they? Yeah, and the kind of putting, asking a young person to be on a committee is a fairly sort of tokenistic oh, box ticking exercise absolutely. rather than and really valuing their voice. And what could kill your soul faster than a committee meeting? Right? <laughs> so it's like confirm them, and then they get they they get to, you know, qualify to be on these committees that do this mind-numbing task of this whatever we've decided church work ought to be, as opposed to, you know, becoming the church in the community and in the world, and you know, modeling what it's like to live that life. You know, um, so. Um. There's a there's a chunk in the book about about salvation, and I'm particularly interested in the connection between um, salvation and young people exploring their identity and, yeah. and kind of stepping into their identity. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of where you see that connection happening? Yeah, I got I got some pushback for that article uh, when it first <laughs> came out because it turns out that different um, religious traditions talk about salvation. Or, or actually don't even use the word in, in ways that I was not even aware of until <laughs> it showed up in print. And then, oops. Um, and the other thing is, I, I, I might have accidentally, uh, I tried to edit it so it didn't say this, but you could get the idea that you don't really have your identity and salvation, I guess, is something you can grow into mm. as opposed to just by the natural process of human development, right? <laughs> if you grow sufficiently. Well, you know, there's a million things wrong with that. You know, not everybody's on the same developmental trajectory. You know, what does that say about somebody who doesn't have the cognitive ability to make decisions for themselves or whatever? Does that mean that um, what Christ did is not for them? Of course not. Um, so the term salvation is um, one of those terms that 
you know, if you get too much education, you get a little itchy just using it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that being said, it's it's a term that's out there, and it's mm. in our it's in our tradition. We got to make peace with that somehow. Mm. And so, um, I think the a big part of the identity question, especially for um, young people right now, there there's always you know identity, um, belonging, and purpose are kind of like the big three that you've got to deal with when you're an adolescent and you know but purpose is a big one right and so you're to to reframe it a little bit as salvation from into salvation for you know mm. yes we're mm. saved from sin in the way that the traditional language says but that's not because there's you know some existential lily pad we just get to sit on right it's we're saved for you know the purpose mm. of living and working and being with God and that has a, a, a very different set of assumptions kind of to go with that mm-hmm. which I think are pretty tied to vocation and mm-hmm. you know what if I'm saved for something for what you know how, how will God use me what what are these gifts for you know what if, if I don't live into that what happens to me you know um, is God done with me does God throw me away no of course not God comes back circles back Again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I, the, the term is fraught with a lot of theological baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my shorthand is just to say, well, <laughs> you're saved for something, not just from something. It's part of the problem there that if you're saved for something, that's almost then an... I'm, I'm a little bit uneasy using this phrase, but like an incomplete salvation until you uh-huh. know what your calling is to some extent. Mm. That's interesting because I had what I had heard in that phrase was this: the you're already you're already saved for something. You just have to figure out what it is. Okay. You know, so I suppose you could take it both ways. Yeah. But in my own theology is the salvation part. That's what God has already accomplished. Yeah. So you know, our job is to figure out how to participate in that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a matter of discerning gifts and opportunities and time in your life and all the things that go with that. And is that identity <clears throat> aspect of that almost a little bit trickier in a context where young people are um, more at home with slipping in and out of identity from yeah. um, context yeah, yeah. to context or online or whatever? Like, does that muddy the waters to it some extent? It does, in part because our understanding of human development around identity has shifted quite a bit in the last 30 years. Um, instead of it being a static thing that you have, you know, Erickson talked about identity, identity achievement. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes it sound like it's done. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he meant that, but that was an easy thing to, to think. You could think like that mm-hmm. in, the, in those days because postmodernity had not broken apart all of the categories yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, but now we understand that to be a much more fluid kind of possibility and um, something that's more constructed in multiple contexts, for example. Um, so, I will. I, my bias, I think, is that there is such a thing as um, an anchor identity. I suppose that you can kind of you, you can sail away from it, you know, in certain contexts. Like you can create your avatar, you can go online and create something that you're not there yet, or whatever. But two things happen. First of all, I don't think we're ever really away from that anchor identity. And I'm willing to say that that anchor identity is given to us, you know, you know, in baptism, in creation, in ways. 
that we then spend a lot of time trying to fig- find out what that is and return to it because we mess it up all the time. But the other thing is, I think that when we construct these other identities, they also they, they have a shaping effect on that anchor identity, you know. And so there's kind of a give and take between the, you know, who we think we are, and let's say that we decide that we're anchored in Christ, right? You know, if we go off into the interwebs and create some really, you know, screwed up kind of identity out there, that has an effect on that other identity. So there's there's sort of a magnetic pull to keep them consistent. Um, one of the chapters in the book, you talk about um, youth ministry being a laboratory for the church. Oh, yeah. So a place of hope for the future of the yeah. church, which I really love. So the, the idea that um, what's happening in youth work is actually a model to the to the wider church. Um, is that fair? Yeah, I, that's like a, one of my core convictions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah, which I love. And we're wondering kind of if you've seen a movement from the laboratory to the wider church. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that happening? Every 20 years. Right. Every 20 years. I mean, <clears throat> if you want to, I do think it's true that if you want to see where the church is going to be, right now, look at what's happening with teenagers in their faith right now, which suge- has some really kind of spooky suggestions for the next 20 years because as young people are more and more finding the church not to be the place they can best exercise their faith I have that conversation once a week it blows my mind mm-hmm. I, I feel called to ministry I feel called to you know mission I feel called to do this in my community I, I feel called to change the world but the, you know I can't do that in a church so I'm going to go start a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. you know or this one happened for real I, I feel I really want to create Christian community in my town, that's what I think. I, I want to be part. It was an African American guy. I want to be part of the African American community building process. But obviously, I can't do that in a church. So, and he's studying to be a pastor. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what have, what have we become? If church is not where you find Christian community. But is that what is that because they're, that's what they're seeing in the generation above them, or do you think it is the other way around? think what they're seeing in the generation above them and their experience of church is why would I replicate that yeah you know and so they don't have tons of other options in their imagination about what that might look like many of them and uh, most of them just don't they don't critique it they just leave Mm -hmm. you know and that doesn't that may or may not mean that they leave faith but uh, but a lot of them do and I think it's not because they necessarily meant to or, or it was a plan it was just that, well, that didn't matter, but this does. So I'm going to put that sense of that need to serve the world, that need, that impetus that somehow I have, you know, I'm going to put that over here instead. Mm. Um, and so there, there are some concrete things. I mean, there are quite a bit of things that have come out of um, youth ministry that have influenced. The, the biggest one is music. It, I happen to be United Methodist, and if you want to see what the current... Well, it's not even current anymore from when I was a kid, but um, the, the songs that wind up in the hymnal in 20 years are songs you sang at camp in the last generation, you know, and they w- somehow work their way into the mainstream, and then they, you know, that's the sure way to make sure they're no longer cool. Um, and, but a lot of the, a lot of the worship, um, ta- you know, the things that we do in worship kind of regularly now would be something that happened in youth ministry you know, 25 years ago, right. and that was considered quite, quite youthy, yeah. you know, and, um, 
now it's pretty much mainstream. Do you think that stopped happening to some extent? Like, <clears throat> if, if youth ministry was always, like, 20 years ahead of the rest of the church, I think most youth ministry now probably doesn't look dissimilar from the church that it's part of. It's, like, churches I, have caught right, up. Right, and, and so it's become a problem that, like, great for our churches, but yeah. our youth ministries have stopped innovating or pushing forward or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, a cup, yeah, I think you're probably right on that for a couple of reasons. One is that young people aren't staying around long enough to feed it back into mm. the church in the next generation. And the other is that, I mean, Pete Ward makes this observation that um, the, what, what, gee, 30 years ago, we would have said there was a distinction between youth culture and the culture at large. Well, that has collapsed. Mm. And there's no such thing as youth culture that's not just culture. Yeah. And so um, that's true to an extent, I think, in churches, too. The, the lines between those the cultural expressions is pretty mushy. Um, I think a lot of it is just that young people aren't staying around in congregations to bring those sensibilities into congregations in the next generation. Is, is part of the reason they're not sticking around because of... One of the, phrase, one of the phrases used is, like, a lack of eschatological imagination. Like... We're very good at talking like way in the future for young people, but actually, what is is there a lack of concrete hope for young people in the here and now? Young people who don't have a job will never be able to afford a house uh-huh. and don't know what a right. stable relationship looks like. I do think that we don't understand eschatology first. We think that it's what's going to happen mm. out there, as opposed to because you know how the game ends, you can live with less anxiety now. Mm. You know your team's going to win. You've seen the the it's it's a rerun. We, you, we've seen the yeah. end. So that changes the way we watch the game. And so, um, you know, part of it is just allowing the end of the story to speak to us now, as opposed to just kind of saying, well, that's off there somewhere else. Having a robust eschatology as an antidote to anxiety Uh feels like, I mean, that could be completely transforming for churches and youth ministry and the world. I mean, one of the things I think it would do, which is tied to our innovation theme this week, is that um, it would stop us from feeling like we, you know, constantly had to have all the answers, right? And instead, we could let go and, and try some experiments without being quite so tied up in knots over if they fail. Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to fail. Most ministries fail. They run out of money. They run the need they've addressed is done. They, you know, almost everything that we try is, you know, has a temporary shelf life. Um, but to be able to say, yes, we we do this with the confidence that, you know, God, God has this, whether we screw this up or not. Now, that doesn't give us permission to, you know, to really mess things up on purpose, but since we can be pretty sure that we're not going to get it right anyway, we at least can try some things and learn from that and then feed that into the next thing. So I think it would make us far less um, uptight, for crying out loud, you know? What kind of things would you like to see people take risks with? Well, I want every church to be... Um, a laboratory in their community for not just for the next generation, but for what else is what's possible out there. Mm. You know that if somebody has a crazy idea, in, you know what they should think. Here's what I want them to think. I want this to happen. You know, it's mm. on one day, someday, that um, if let's say somebody in the community in the in the schools, some kid has a great idea for something, and they're like, oh, that's, that's a crazy idea. You know who you should talk to? 
You should show, go talk to some Christians. They're the people who pour mm. into stuff like that. You know, they're the people who try things. They're the people who, if it's for, if it's for our community, if it's for young people, the place you want to go, you, got, you need to find a church to go, to help you on that. And what we've got to get over is, instead of seeing that young person who comes to us as as a conquest, <laughs> we've got to say, oh. Okay, we see gifts in you that we think are from God. You might not think that, but that's how we think of it. So it's what we're called to do is not capture you, but champion you. So what does it look like if every church is a champion of young people who are, have these way, impulses to want to make the world better? You know, what does it mean to come alongside a young person in their ministry instead of co-opting them to do ours? Yeah, it's, it's part of the reason we're not doing that because of our own anxiety about the future of our church so we get stuck into this like massive short termism where we (laughs) like so there's no space for kind of innovation or any of that to develop because we're stuck on the next year and just getting through that like like a really bad football coach whatever kind of football we're talking about (laughs) who like the the best strategy for a football team right is probably looking over the next 10 years but he's so concerned about keeping his job for the next year yeah the, right. In the the problem, the same problems just keep repeating. Are yeah. we stuck in that kind of cycle? I I'm sure that that's a huge part of it, um, and, and and we're just we're we're unable to see that that when young people come to us, I, a lot of times I call this vampire theology. Mm. You know when, <laughs> that they're not people that they're not people that we're supposed to like suck the life right out of, right? Mm. Um, so they're not sent to us as our as the blood we need to survive. You know they're. Mm. They're sent to us because, you know, they've got something God's going to use. And our job is to figure out what that is and to pour life into them instead of suck life out of them. Mm. Um, but I think our you're right. It's anxiety that forces us to um, think of them as, oh, they're here to save us. And, you know, no nobody wants to be used. Mm. And that's what that is, is we're using mm. young people for our own institutional yeah. salvation or... or Preservation. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause one of the things I was going to ask about was about marginalising young people. And, you know, do you think as as churches we do that? And I mean, from what you've said yeah. just then, it's. I think as a society we do that yeah. largely. And one of the reasons why I'm sold on the innovation movement is that it tends to um, it, it uh, recenters uh, or allows the possibility of recentering young people. So that they are more leaders and less, um, you know, in the holding tank. Um, so that, uh, you know, we can honor the kinds of things that they bring to the table in more direct ways. You, you kind of want church to be modeling that to the Absolutely. wider society. Are, are there ways that you've seen churches doing that well? Are there examples that you can give us that would well, help I us think, to do that? I mean, I do think that um, a lot of congregations... Well, uh, let me say it this way. A lot of people in youth ministry who are in congregations, um, I I would count myself among these, get into it because it's the only place in the church you can rearrange the furniture. (laughs) And um, we have some sense that the furniture desperately needs to be rearranged. So where can we do that? Well, we do know that, you know, they, people, because they love their kids and, you know, they, to a degree, they will let their kids do that because they don't, they don't take it that seriously, honestly. But what happens is, very often, um, when um, youth ministry is healthy, it has a yeast effect in the congregation as a whole. And I would like to think that that's true in communities as well, although it's less, it's, it's harder to test that. 
that you know when what young people bring into the organization is is health and life that the organization takes note of that and not just benefits from it but actually begins to change what they're doing as a result so one of the most common ways that that happens i think is that um, churches poach youth, youth leaders for other ministry uh, jobs right that happens a lot and um there's and, and there are also ways that young people have brought something into the life of um, a community that churches also want to be involved in. I, I happen to go to a church that started a food truck. And so, you know, this is something that it started out as just a few people, you know. They were young adults, and they um, eventually it became very important to the identity of the whole congregation. Um, so I, I do think that you know, it was Margaret Mead, I think, who said, don't ever underestimate the power of 12 people to change the world. You know, it's the only thing that ever has. So I think that's true whether they are young people or old people. Um, but youth do have some permission often that adults don't feel to shake it up a little. You're, you mainly speak about uh, young people within church. Right. So I just wanted to... my default to... mode because I'm American, yeah. right? So I'm I wanted to sort of... T- ask if you've, you know, what, how things apply to young people outside the church yeah. or, you know. We are way them. less um, advanced than you in terms of our ability to get beyond the, the church walls. And I, I understand it's partly, it's just the nature of the way churches function in our two cultures. Um, and we are not, for example, able to be anywhere close to schools in any way that represents the church. You know, if there's a if there's a suicide or something, we can show up and help, obviously, in those kinds of situations. But what, and so we have to define our relationships with any public institution or any place that kids hang out very carefully. And as a result, the the easier thing to do is just to well, we'll focus on the kids that come to church, or we'll focus on the way our church can somehow assist kids in our community. But we still do that as a as a congregation. I do think that there's a big learning curve in the U.S. for what it looks like to um, be a positive youth championing presence in the community at large. One of the things that's, I think, going to be the growing edge of youth ministry in our context is how do you do youth ministry when you don't have any kids in your church? Mm -hmm. Now, this has been the reality in the U.K. for a while, right? Mm -hmm. It's now the reality in my denomination of about 30% of our churches. And they just assume they don't have any youth ministry. And I'm like, no, you absolutely have youth ministry. Look around. It's called ministry with young people who are there. You just don't see them because you expect them to be in the pews. Um, So that's one of the places I think that we learn from you. One of of the reasons I'm a fan of Youthscape is that they didn't didn't pay me to make this plug. (laughs) Um, Is I think the programs that they bring into schools are superb and it's one way that shows that the church is a way is as a as an organization is called to be a presence in the community that is for people you know that is for the mental health of our teenagers that is for the way they handle their romances you know all of those things that youthscape provides and they don't feel the need to have to proselytize every single minute because the church doesn't have to proselytize every minute. You know, if you see people loving each other, that is that is the message. That's it. Is that what you think 
good youth ministry in 2017 looks like then? Much more about doing and less about talking. Um, I'll speak to the American context on that one because in America, I would say yes. Um, we have, partly because of cultural shifts, partly because of bad behavior on the part of churches, um, we have lost our credibility to speak into situations with words in large part. Um, we have to earn that trust back. And trust is earned by actions more than by words. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't say who we work for. We do. Um, but you don't have to hit people over the head with that. Um, because what they're really doing is, okay, if, if you work for Jesus, show me. You know, So we're in the show me stage, I think. If necessary, use words. Whoever said that. You know, <laughs> Thomas Burton, I think. Yeah. Um, I kind of don't want to ask you about this, but I think um, it's important to acknowledge that uh, we live in a very male-dominated world, yeah. and um, the youth work world, I guess, you know, on the ground, there's, I don't know the ratios, but um, there's plenty of women in youth ministry, but in terms of having a voice, um, yeah. and particularly, you know, in terms of the theological um, academy kind of right. voice... It's unusual to find a woman's voice in that world, from my perspective anyway. Yeah. I wondered what your perspective is, and if you yeah. found that to be the case, and if so, how you how you perceive that. I've got I've got two minds on that because I think your perspective is correct. That um, when it gets to the when when you are actually doing hands-on service with with teenagers and with young people, there are plenty of women out there. As soon as you start getting into places that have more prestige, you find fewer women and more guys. And that follows its way all the way up to the academy, you know, and um, my school and every other theological school out there probably is really hurting to find, you know, women to fill spots. And, um, but the other side of that is my own experience has been... Um, I've had lots of women in my life as ministry models. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I did not know, actually, until I was a professional that sexism in um, the church was still a thing. Uh, the first church I served, I was the third pastor who was a woman there. So in many ways, it felt like that trail had been blazed. I was the first pregnant woman. but <laughs> they, um, it, So I, I had plenty of support as a woman when I was coming into my early ministry years. That wasn't the experience of a lot of my colleagues, but um, it was my experience. And um, I was I was personally fortunate to come from a family where it was like not a, not a thing. Not a thing, right. right. And um, so I didn't really appreciate how difficult it can be um, until way later in the game. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that that trend is still true even though the church itself has become largely feminized in terms of who actually participates in churches. So on the ground, you have more women than men, um, at least in um, mainline churches in our context. So um, I guess what I am learning is that while it's possible that you can, you know, you can leave the church no matter who you are. Um, you know, the barriers that are there are there, and some people experience them to a greater or lesser degree. Um, but um, it doesn't, we don't escape the fact that we got a system we've got to, you know, rectify a little bit. Um, 
what can I do about that? Like, not as in me as in some, like, massively powerful person, <laughs> but, like, me as a bloke who works for a denomination. Um, what's my role? And I'll ask this to both of you. Like, is my role just to sit back? Is there stuff, like, proactively I can be doing to ensure more women's voices are heard? Because I'm aware that my position as a white, middle-class bloke in the world of youth ministry is incredibly privileged. Um... What well, I think even knowing that is a good start. It's a great, sure. it's a great <laughs> well question done. to ask. And I, I mean, I have to say, my mentors growing up in youth ministry were men. And they were the people who allowed me and encouraged me um, to have a voice. I mean, I remember as a teenager physically having... I, one of my mentors, I call him Reverend John to this day. Um, I was... I was um, doing a prayer for a conference and you know I was having I was struggling with it he physically came to the um, podium not he didn't get on it he stood behind me and I felt his being behind me as strength you know but it was my voice that he was strengthening not his and it never it was because of that kind of experience which for me happened often um, made me, it never dawned on me that that isn't the way that an adult would come behind a young person. That's the, I think that's the model, not just of men with women, of women with young men, of people of any any kind who feels a need to, who has a voice. That's our job as youth ministers to stand behind them. Um, rather than lead for, lead from behind. What would be the one piece of advice you would give to someone starting out today in youth ministry? Well, I think it would be a personal piece of advice, and that is um, uh, hang on to your friends, hang on to your family. You do ministry well when you are whole. And not only do they give you, you know, the strength and so on to do good ministry, but I think you also bear witness to young people about the kind of adult, what an adult life looks like that is whole. And um, and that and they notice that, right? You know, when you say no because you've got a family commitment with your kids who are sick and they've kept you up all night, they are those those kids experience that they they they're disappointed, but you know what? They're proud of you because you're being the kind of parent they want to be, and they see that and they get that. And not all of them have that in their own homes. And it's not that our failures don't. I mean, they, we're going to fail in front of them too, for sure. Um, but um, there's a lot of time spent with friends and family that get sacrificed in the name of youth ministry, and I think that is, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well, um, but that is something that I feel like we have to constantly keep in front of us, um, and sometimes we do our best ministry by not doing the ministry. absolutely worth every word and I have to say Martin you've gone a little bit starstruck in the in the studio I always do, I always you, do. You, you do love Kenda don't you I, uh, in, on a deep and profound yeah, level a lot of love for Kenda and this is the moment because she she probably won't you know she won't have listened to this she doesn't know who you are she, she doesn't know who I am <laughs> no but I, I need to make a little confession oh, which okay. is that I broke the blind in her bathroom Right, Martin, this was supposed to be a quick outro. Yeah, We I have know. to recap this. I know. A, why were you in her bathroom? B, so, what were you doing? Touch 
watching a blind. I was in the guest bathroom. <laughs> In her house. In her house. Oh, I see you do in, 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 in her hotel room. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> I was in the guest right. bedroom, in the guest bathroom, and it had one of those roller blind things that you pull. You're never quite yes. sure. There's a chain, and you're never sure which bit to pull. Yes. And it wasn't the bit I pulled. Don't pull that bit. No. And so it came down, and it wouldn't go back up again. And then I panicked a bit, oh. and uh, and then left the country. Oh my goodness! And I, I appreciate that. You know, I I deeply love Kenda, and uh, and I've never told her. But you know what? I think she's a woman that that'll be small fry to her. Yeah, she she's won't like, care. I'm changing the world, Martin Storms. I don't care about blinds. But I think she Hang was. I don't know what, what that accent what, what, was. It was a very good American accent. What was accent. that? But as a woman who probably equally doesn't really care too much about roller blinds, okay. when there are young people's lives at stake, yeah. I think you can now look look her in the eyes. But I, might, I might ring her. I think off air though, we need, we now need to talk about our, our kind of catalogue of things we we've done in other people's houses that we've never confessed probably because I have off a air? whole okay, yeah off air. These guys don't need to hear. Why don't we just do it next week's podcast? <laughs> okay, next week's podcast. We're ready to share. All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs> You can find out more about Concrete at concreteyouthwork.co.uk. I feel like George the Sixth.